0: Hello, God's tech support. No, sorry, he's busy. How can I help? Pandemic. Sure. Awful. Let's just check. I see here we did send you some scientists and doctors. And it looks like they've come up with some simple ways to help end the pandemic. Vaccines, masks, simple stuff. Ah, you don't trust them. And the reason? Some politicians, podcast hosts, and someone on Facebook said not to. I see. Okay, so let's see if I understand this correctly. Um, there's a pandemic that's killed millions worldwide. You have the solutions to help end the pandemic, but you don't want to. Don't worry, don't worry. I think I know what the issue is. You have what we in tech support call a 1D10T problem. That's right, that's right. If you could just write that down. Yeah. 1D10T. One one <laughs> That's right, it does look like it spells idiot. <laughs> hey, I think we're gonna have to reboot Earth. Yeah, I think we are. Good
1: God. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's right. I got the feeling that something is right. Still ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me Jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yes I am
2: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in California In Red Bluff and Redding On KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN And Eureka's KGOE up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and, well, most fine podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com well if you thought that just because we are now into 2022 a midterm election year in case you haven't heard desi doyan have you heard (laughs) this is an election year
3: i know i've heard
2: yeah well if you thought that the uh, maga mob was going to be done pretending that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from them despite any evidence to actually support that uh, that claim? Well, I guess you don't know Donald Trump and his magma. Although uh, good news, good news may be here. There is some evidence that at least some of them may be at least a little embarrassed about all of this, given that the great state of Texas. Yes, Texas, Desi's home state. Yep. Yeah which decided just last September to carry out a so-called forensic audit of the 2020 election after being harangued to do so by Donald Trump. Well, Texas has now released the first part of the results of that so-called audit, and they were so proud of it that they released it last Friday night on New Year's Eve. Aha! So, you know, they wanted everyone to see their work. (laughs) Uh, We will discuss that work shortly and perhaps uh, more importantly, the entire concept of post-election audits, real ones, not what we have seen from so much of the MAGA mob to date and how it is now even more imperative, frankly, that we figure out how to add transparency and actual public oversight to our elections. Before 2024 or some very real stuff could hit the fan. I- I've been yelling and screaming about it for, oh, I don't know, going on 20 years now, but uh, now it really matters.
3: Yes, indeed it does. Uh, we
2: will be joined uh, by... <laughs> As at
3: every election. Yeah. But yeah it's, it's even more imperative now. Yep. Get involved in your local elections. It's really good.
2: We will be joined by uh, perhaps the nation's foremost expert of real post-election audits. Momentarily to discuss all of that. But first, very quickly, more than one hundred and three thousand Americans were hospitalized with COVID-19 on Monday. That, according to figures from Washington Post, it's the highest number since late summer when the Delta variant of the virus triggered a nationwide surge in cases that's a 27% rise in covid-19 hospitalizations in the US in the past week while the daily average of new cases during that same period has more than doubled but it is hospitalization numbers rather than infection numbers that better capture the impact right now of the pandemic since so many people are now already vaccinated and they therefore are not being hospitalized in the same numbers in the bargain the worst day of the pandemic for hospitalizations ever was January 14 of 2021, when more than 142,000 were reported that day. But now we're over 100,000, 103,000 reported in one single day on Monday. We are starting to push that number, that record number, simply because the Omicron variant is so easily transmissible. Fewer hospitalizations per Capita, but many more infected means we could soon see hospitalization numbers that are similar or even worse than what we've seen during the worst of the surges over the past two years. Uh, In remarks at the White House on Tuesday afternoon, President Biden again urged unvaccinated Americans to receive their uh, coronavirus vaccine and booster shots, noting that for those who are fully vaccinated, it is, quote, very unlikely that you will become seriously ill. Be concerned about Omicron, he said, but don't be alarmed before adding if you're unvaccinated, you have some reason to be alarmed. But uh, we had a caller yesterday on the show who said that his brother was a libertarian and was not alarmed in the least, apparently, because uh, the brother said that, oh, 80 percent of those who were killed from covid were overweight or obese. And I guess his brother wasn't. That, as uh, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, was permanently banned on Twitter the day before, after claiming that if you're under 65, you have nothing to worry about. Well, uh, two birds with one quick stone here before I get to my guest. Just last month, GOP activist and Orange County Deputy District Attorney Kelly Earnby was speaking at an anti-vaccine rally put on by local Turning Point USA chapters. That's this right wing group student group. Uh, She was speaking here in Southern California. She she had protested against government vaccine mandates by comparing the present times to the 1960s, a period where she claimed people lost their freedoms because of the spread of socialist ideals. Okay, she told the uh, small crowd of about 40 people at the rally, quote, there's nothing that matters more than our freedoms right now. According to the student newspaper at Cal State University at Fullerton, our government for the people and by the people is not going to exist without action of the people, she told the small but enthusiastic crowd. Earnby spent more than a decade in the district attorney's office before running unsuccessfully in 2020 for a state assembly seat as a Republican, protesting government mandates requiring people to get vaccinated against the virus. I don't think that the government should be involved in mandating what vaccines people are taking, she said. That's a decision between, a, between doctors and their patients. If the government is going to mandate vaccines, she said, what else are they going to mandate? That was during one of her campaign appearances. Well, Kelly Earnby died this week of COVID-19. She was 46 years old. And she had planned to run again this year for the state assembly. She was young at 46. And from the photos I have seen, no, she was not overweight or obese in the least. Uh, None of the news outlets covering her death mentioned any comorbidities that she might have had. She was a young woman, a young blonde white woman from Orange County. She was very passionate about her love for politics, for America and the Republican Party, said John Fleischman, former executive director of the California Republican Party and also a longtime Orange County GOP activist. According to him, Earnby was readying another state assembly run when the two traded text messages just last week. She confided that she had fallen ill with COVID-19, but Fleischman did not expect her to die, calling her passing sudden. As the uh, two had planned to talk this week, condolences piled up for Earnby on Monday as community leaders memorialized her. Todd Spitzer, the Orange County District Attorney, mourned her loss as, uh, calling her an incredibly vibrant and passionate attorney who cared deeply about the community we all fight so hard to protect. Patricia Wenskunas, founder of Crime Survivors, praised Earnby on Twitter for making "quote public safety" a priority. Really? Yep. So listen, I know I'm a broken record here, um, but get your shots, people. I could I, I could tell one of these stories. I could tell ten of these stories every day on this show. We haven't done so for a while, but. But uh, this is for reals. Get your shots. And if you've already had your first ones, get your booster shot. The next two to four weeks are going to be very, very rough. Hopefully Omicron burns out quickly, but we don't know that it will for sure. And like I say, things are going to get very rough. So, um, you know, if you want to make public safety a priority, that starts by uh, taking care of yourself so you don't pass this disease on to someone else. As uh, someone apparently did to uh, Orange County Deputy District Attorney and anti-vaxxer Kelly Earnby, 46 years old. All right. Quick break. And we will be joined by UC Berkeley's Philip Stark, inventor of the post-election risk limiting audit protocol to discuss the results of the new 2020 election audit in Texas. And if you didn't hear about it, well, there's a reason for it. We will discuss that and much more along with Desi Doyen's first Green News report of the new year. Oh, yeah. Yay. That's all ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs)
3: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to Bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
4: The eyes of Texas are upon you all
3: oh,
1: the long day.
2: They certainly are. The Welcome back to the Texas Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Back in late September last year, almost a full year after the 2020 presidential election, Texas election officials pretty much out of the blue announced that they were going to audit the 2020 presidential election results in four large counties in the Lone Star State. According to the certified results, Donald Trump won Texas fairly handily in 2020 by about five and a half percentage points. But it was the closest margin of victory for a GOP presidential nominee in decades there. And apparently Donald Trump could not stand that. So he demanded that the state carry out an audit of their 2020 results, pressing Republican Governor Greg Abbott, a longtime Donald Trump puppet, to initiate one. It was just before the pro-Trump cyber ninjas in Maricopa County, Arizona last year would release the results of their months-long post-election audit, so-called audit, finding that Joe Biden, the first Democrat to have won uh, the state in years in Arizona, actually defeated Donald Trump there by an even larger margin than was originally certified by the state. There are questions about the results reported by that so-called post-election forensic audit carried out by the cyber ninjas in Arizona, as we've reported on this program. The numbers that they tallied in secret do not appear to match up with, well, pretty much anything. Leading real election experts with actual experience in post-election audits to charge that the ninjas ultimately just made up their numbers after failing to find anything amiss in the in their count, their hand count of 2.1 million ballots in Arizona's largest county. They found zero evidence that the election results were stolen or fraudulent in any way that might have changed Arizona's vote in 2020. But just before that happened, just before the ninjas came out with their questionable results, Donald Trump had insisted that Texas also carry out a similar review and hours after pressing the state's Republican governor, the Texas secretary of state's office announced that they would, in fact, carry out such a review in three large counties that voted for Joe Biden and one that voted for Donald Trump in 2020. At the time, the Texas secretary of state's office didn't say what prompted the announcement in uh, an evening news release. Earlier in the year, the office's election administrator had lauded the uh, 2020 elections in Texas as, quote, safe and secure. The counties to be audited, however, would include the major Democratic strongholds around Houston, Dallas, as well as Tarrant County, which for years had been the largest GOP controlled county in Texas. But it went for President Joe Biden in 2020 The other county in the Texas Review is booming Collin County in a suburban uh, in suburban Dallas that went for Trump in 2020. The secretary's announcement declared, quote, under existing Texas laws, the secretary of state has the authority to conduct a full and comprehensive forensic audit of any election and has already begun the process in Texas's two largest Democrat counties and two largest Republican counties. It went on to say the office expected the legislature, the taxpayers in the so-called conservative state, to provide the funding for this audit. Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo at the time, a Democrat and the county's top elected official, criticized the move, tweeting, Donald Trump ordered Governor Abbott to audit the 2020 election and, like clockwork, Texas just initiated an audit of Harris County voters. Democracy, she said isn't a game well that game completed its first round at the end of the year the very end of the year and state republicans were apparently so proud of it that they released uh, the results on new year's eve when pretty much nobody would notice it but we did as the texas tribune reported on december 31st at 6 p.m at night The Texas Secretary of State's office has released the first batch of results from its review into the 2020 general election, finding few issues despite repeated, unsubstantiated claims by GOP leaders casting doubts on the integrity of the electoral system. The first phase of the review showed few discrepancies between electronic and hand counts of ballots in a sample of voting precincts in Harris, Dallas, Tarrant and Collin counties. And as far as I can tell, this part of the exercise merely looked at the number of ballots reported as having been cast and counted, as opposed to the actual results of the voted ballots, at least as far as I can tell. Remy Garza, president of the Texas Association of Election Administrators, said there was not anything in the review's first set of results that raised any alarms for him. There doesn't seem to be anything too far out of the ordinary, he said. Garza serves as the election administrator in Cameron County. In Texas, counties that use electronic voting systems, which is to say much of Texas, are already required to conduct a partial audit in anywhere from one to three precincts under state law in one race as chosen by the secretary of state and carried out last year as required. According to the state's new review of counties' partial manual counts, there were few differences between electronic and manual ballot uh, uh, tallies in those uh, uh, counties that they looked at. In Cowan County, for example, a partial manual count of ballots in three precincts found a vote discrepancy of 17 with county officials chalking up the difference to curbside voters who are allowed to vote from their cars using machines that do not produce a paper record, according to the state's report. So there was no manual ballot to actually count. In Dallas County, where almost one million votes were cast in 2020, well, they had a vote discrepancy of 10 across seven precincts. But the state's report says that That appeared to have resulted from a data entry error when county officials first reported the results of the partial manual count to the state. The manual counts showed a mail-in ballot discrepancy of just five votes in 10 Harris County Houston precincts, which county officials said was caused by an error in the manual counting of the ballots. And Tarrant County had zero discrepancies in the sample of seven precincts that it was required to review in all, at least in this first phase of the state's so-called audit, which also looked at the possibility of dead voters casting ballots, people voting in two different places or non U.S. citizens casting votes. Pretty much nothing out of the ordinary was discovered, at least in the four counties currently under review, making up about four million Of the 11.3 million votes cast statewide, for example, just over a dozen votes were cast by voters described in the report as, quote, potentially deceased voters under review that made up about zero point zero 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 six or six ten thousandth of a percentage point of the votes that were cast in the 2020 general election that were cast by, quote, potentially deceased voters perhaps we'll find out if they were deceased or not in further reports some of the figures highlighted by the state according to the texas tribune either appear to be faulty or remain unverified for example the secretary of state's office noted that it had sent counties a list of more than 11,000 records of registered voters that it deemed quote possible non-us citizens But the Tribune previously reported that scores of citizens, including many who registered to vote at their naturalization ceremonies, were marked for review, even though they were, in fact, U.S. citizens. The state, they note, has a shoddy history of reviewing the voter rolls for ineligible individuals. In 2012, for example, the state settled a lawsuit over its flawed effort to remove dead people from the rolls in which thousands of Texans received letters asking them to prove that they were alive. Really? The state's first effort to scour the rolls for supposed non-citizens back in 2019 produced a botched review that jeopardized the voting rights of tens of thousands of naturalized citizens. They were forced to abandon that effort after being sued in federal court. The second phase of this Texas process now will take place in 2022. It will examine election records, quote, to ensure election administration procedures were followed properly. That, According to documentation previously released by the state, that includes a review of records of voting machine accuracy tests, rosters for early voting, forms detailing chain of custody for sealed ballot boxes and other election materials maintained by the counties. The official overseeing the review, Secretary of State John Scott, previously helped Donald Trump challenge 2020 election results in Pennsylvania. He was appointed to the position by Governor Abbott last year after the previous Secretary of State stepped down. Scott said in an October interview with the Tribune that President Joe Biden won the 2020 election and that he has, quote, not seen anything to suggest that the election was stolen from Trump, Eddie Perez, a voting expert from Texas who we've had on this show several times, and he works with the nonprofit Open Source Election, election Technology Institute, he tweeted out a link to the Texas report on New Year's Day and added, "Quote a damn waste of time." Real audits conducted in good faith and with precision are valuable. This, however, is B.S. political theater, and everyone from the governor to the secretary of state knows it, he said. That's precisely why the results turned up essentially nothing, said Perez. Of course, Arizona and Texas are hardly the only states still carrying out these post-election reviews, audits, forensic audits, audit theater, whatever you want to call them. Um, there is another something underway being described as a forensic audit in Wisconsin, for example. It's being overseen by the former Republican uh, state Supreme Court justice, guy by the name of Michael Gableman, who was such an embarrassment to his party, according to sources I've spoken to in the Badger State, that he was asked to not run again for the Supreme Court. That guy, Gableman attended pillow guy Mike Lindell's failed cyber symposium in South Dakota last year, where Lindell's uh, promised but never delivered absolute proof that the 2020 election was stolen by China. uh, Well, was never delivered. Gableman, meanwhile, is being paid by Wisconsin taxpayers to carry out some exercise that has included threats to arrest several Wisconsin mayors if they refuse to come in and speak with him or turn over certain documents. For years, Democratic legislation in Congress has called for post-election audits in all 50 states that follows a specific protocol, along with hand-marked paper ballots that can be easily tallied manually such as in Senator Ron Wyden's SAFE Act. Those efforts were all blocked, every single one of them, blocked and killed every single time by Republicans. Some of the very same Republicans who are now insisting on post-election audits of the 2020 race more than a year after it was certified by all 50 states. Philip B. Stark is a professor of statistics and an associate dean of mathematical and physical sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. He currently serves on the board of advisors of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission and several years ago served on then-California Secretary of State Deborah Bowen's post-election audit standards working group. He is the inventor of the Risk-Limiting Election Audit Protocol, And has worked with the secretaries of state of California and Colorado to develop, test and deploy procedures for risk limiting audits, legitimate ones. He also oversaw, along with our friend, the legendary cybersecurity and voting system expert Hari Hursty, a post-election audit this year in Wyndham, New Hampshire. After there was an actual discrepancy in the voting system, scanners, as compared to the hand counted results of hand marked paper ballots, eventually finding that the scanners in question were misreading folds in the absentee ballots as votes. Philip Stark joins us again today on the broadcast to make some sense of this GOP audit fever and what, if any of it, is legitimate and or what we can learn from any of it. Professor Stark, Happy New Year, sir. Welcome back to the broadcast.
4: Happy New Year, Brad. Great to talk to you.
2: Uh, So, uh, Philip, I know you have long called for post-election audits in the U.S. and are, in fact, uh, one of, if not the nation's foremost champion of such things. So, I guess you must be very happy with all of this post-election auditing finally going on.
4: Oh, I detect a note of sarcasm in your voice. What? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, some of these efforts, I, I think, are... Pushing in a good direction. Uh-huh. Um, some of them less so. Some of them are are really more smoke than uh, than illumination.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, a lot of what we're hearing about, including what's going on in Texas right now, I, I wouldn't really call a forensic audit or an election audit. And the terms they're using, like full forensic audit, don't really have any particular meaning. They're not they're not terms of art. The kinds of things that uh, are featured in the interim report from Texas, like looking at the state of the voter registration database, Mm -hmm. looking for duplicates, looking for dead people on the voter rolls, uh, looking for non-citizens on the voter rolls, I don't really consider those to be part of an election audit. Those are part of quality control Mm. that needs to take place before the election. Mm. Um, It does make sense to put some extra attention into that periodically, but that's really all precursor to make sure that in the election... Uh, Everyone who is eligible has the opportunity to vote, and nobody who is ineligible has an opportunity to vote.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I was I was moved. Well, no, I was I was uh, struck in uh, going through this Texas audit report, this uh, uh, first phase. There's more to come. But, you know, it looked like it was. Nothing particularly controversial. They're, uh, you know, dotting their T's, crossing their eyes, making sure that they, uh, the the number of ballots reported as being cast actually existed, checking the voter rolls. Uh, I don't see anything particularly wrong with that. You, as as you suggest, you know, say that should happen before an election, and I sort of agree, but what is the difference in these uh, audits in general that we have been seeing since 2020 in Maricopa County, Arizona, in, in well, in the four counties in Texas, this weird thing going on in Wisconsin? Uh, how is that different uh, than what you have been calling for for so long for, for states to carry out after Election Day?
4: Well, my feeling about all of this is that the end goal is to conduct elections in such a way that we have strong evidence that the reported winners really won. And in order to do that, you need to start by running your election well. And if you run your election well, you will have the, the documents, the processes, the, the security protocols, et cetera, in place that allow you to do a meaningful audit that can tie a bow around the election and say, yes, whatever might have gotten might have gone wrong in the election didn't alter the reported outcome, didn't change who won. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you go in to an election that wasn't run especially well, and I'll I'll use Georgia as an example of that, Mm -hmm. and then afterwards try to do something based on the records that you do have, you're never going to be able to present affirmative evidence that the reported winners really did win. At best, you'll be able to find that, some things happened correctly, some things happened incorrectly, but you won't be able—they won't give you evidence for or against the outcome being right. Mm-hmm. In order to, to, for audits to fulfill this kind of role of, of really demonstrating that whatever went wrong didn't change the outcome, you, you've got to have really good procedures in place for doing things like maintaining the voter registration records, which mm-hmm. is, you know, Texas is is doing some extra diligence there. Uh, you need to make sure that votes are recorded in a way that ensures they can't be altered after the voter, uh, you know, ca- casts their ballot, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of Texas is using paperless uh, DREs. Uh, so there's no way to know whether what's recorded in the memory of those devices corresponds at all to what the voter did or saw.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Similarly, for um, the ballot marking device output. There's no way to know whether what's printed on the paper is what the voter did. All you know is it's what the computer did. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep track of the the voted ballots in a way that ensures that that their physical security is you know is is maintained, mm-hmm. and uh, not rely on the voting system to keep track of things for you. I don't know in detail the rules around physical chain of custody in Texas. But it's clear that there is some confusion because they found different numbers of ballots when they went in by hand mm-hmm. than they had found based on the electronic record.
2: Well, as far as I could tell, most of those were sort of bookkeeping errors in one case where they uh, did the manual count wrong and another case where they transposed the wrong numbers. And then the, uh, the third case uh, seems to have been, you know, where they didn't have the physical ballots to count because the, a, a number of voters had used curbside voting that does not produce a physical ballot to be counted. I mean, it looked like everything was adding up in general.
4: It it could be there was also an element, I I understand that because of uh, the way ballots are collected centrally, or perhaps because of vote centers, they needed to hand sort Mm -hmm. an enormous number of ballots into the precincts that they were supposed to have come from, and that is likely to be a very error-prone process. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to know what's disconnected from what. Mm -hmm. The kind of cross-checks one would like to see is to look at the voter participation and check whether there are more ballots of a given style or fewer ballots of a given style than there are voters who showed up to vote on ballots of that style. Mm -hmm. So this kind of cross-check on voter participation, poll book reconciliation, uh, ballot accounting, really should be routine in every election and should be part of the canvas. And I I just don't know enough about how Texas conducts its elections to know whether it is routine, but this this post-check doesn't seem to have quite, you know, I tied, tied that together.
2: Well, one of the uh, things that the Texas audit report notes is that under state law, quote, counties are required to conduct a manual count in at least one precinct of the election precincts or in three precincts, whichever is greater, in which an electronic voting system was used in a general election. The secretary yeah, of I think state. It's, yeah. I think
4: it's one percent or three, whichever is bigger. Yeah.
2: Right. Oh, one percent. You're right. I said precinct. You're right. The uh, the Secretary of State, who in Texas is appointed by the governor and serves at his pleasure, Secretary of State is responsible for choosing the race uh, or races and precincts or precinct or precincts that are used to conduct the partial manual count in a general election. For the November 2020 election, the office of Texas Railroad Commissioner was chosen as the race for which counties conducted their respective partial manual counts. So does that sound like a good system that is in place for Texas? This was before this sort of uh, extracurricular uh exercise. Does it sound like that Texas has a good system to give voters confidence in the reported results as they uh, currently do after each election?
4: Well, looking is better than not looking, but uh, the uh, <laughs> there are a number of uh, shortcomings of that particular approach. So one is it shouldn't be up to an individual to select which precincts are examined. It should be a random selection, or it invites gaming. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be up to and appointed a political appointee to decide which contest to look at because that invites political gaming.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And uh, looking at one percent for three precincts is very unlikely to be enough. Even if even if they were selected at random, that's very unlikely to be enough to give any confidence that the reported outcomes are right. So you could very easily have an election in which you know relatively few precinct totals were affected, but uh, those that were affected uh, were affected by enough to change who won. And it, here's so it, it's kind of inadequate in a number of ways and subject to gaming in a number of ways. Uh,
2: you know, I I will uh, I, I here's something you won't hear me say very often. I don't mean to pick on Texas. Because usually I do mean to pick on Texas, but, you know, I often see reports from uh, various pro-democracy groups citing states like California as having an excellent post-election audit protocol. uh, But I've seen that they don't actually work very well here in California. They aren't very good. Am I wrong? And are there any states in the union with processes that you, as the inventor of the post-election risk-limiting audit process, Philip Stark actually have confidence in because right now, well, I'll talk about it in a minute. But I think this uh, scramble for post-election audits, even though it comes from you know straight from Donald Trump's lies, actually has a basis in uh, a, a very real lack of confidence in election results that that exist now for a number of reasons.
4: So I'm going to try to divide that question into a couple of pieces. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Colorado is probably among the best in terms of their post-election audit. They are doing a risk-limiting audit of some contests. There are some gaps there. So one is they only do two contests, one statewide and one countywide in each county. Um, Another is that a lot of the information that the public would need to have to confirm whether the audit stopped prematurely or really did confirm the outcome isn't is isn't made publicly available, so their audits perhaps give election officials high confidence in the results, but there might still be reason for the public to have some doubts Mm -hmm. because they they really do need to see more information to confirm that the audit was done correctly. Mm -hmm. I don't know in detail Colorado's regulations and laws around the canvas, around the security of the voting materials and so on, but my impression overall is that it's pretty good. You pointed to California. California used to be better than it is, but even at its best, it still fell short of an audit that Mm -hmm. would give me any confidence that the results were correct. In its current state, uh, California audit law, the 1% manual tally is similar to Texas in that you you look at the votes in 1% of precincts or precincts that comprise 1% of the vote. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be selected at random. But there's a number of big gaps in this. One is, as of a few years ago, the law was revised so that only votes that have been tabulated as of election night are subject to audit. And in some jurisdictions, that could omit the bulk of vote by mail yeah. ballots. Right. And in California, the bulk of ballots are vote by mail ballots in many jurisdictions. Right. So that those are typically tabulated on different equipment. Which is like a road. Which is, cast,
2: which is sorry. like giving a roadmap to the bad guys. Uh, if you want to uh, flip votes or anything, just make sure you do it in the ballots that are not counted by election day.
4: Exactly, and and often those are counted even using different equipment than mm-hmm. the votes that are that are cast and counted on election day. So that equipment might not be subject to any audit whatsoever, depending on on how a, a jurisdiction uh, does its business. I think, um, I th- and then you know, th- the other issue is that the the amount of auditing really uh-huh. ought to be sensitive to the margin. You need more auditing for tighter margins because smaller errors can change the outcome. And the amount of auditing ought to be sensitive to what you see as you audit. If you start to see start to see errors or mm-hmm. don't get strong enough evidence that the outcome is right you ought to look at more ballots. And the reason um, I'm,
2: I'm going down this, this sort of uh, this line of questioning, Philip, is because I know that uh, you know, we're, I mean we're, we've got 50 states, uh, you know, plus some territories and so forth, but the fact that we have to sort of uh, cite states like california and colorado as having really the best systems in the in the union and there's they're not even that particularly good and many states just have absolutely you know almost no post-election oversight at all at least by the public i you know i know a lot of democrats sort of make fun of these reviews from 2020 and you know when they're carried out the way these cyber ninja clowns did in Arizona, well, you know, they're justifiably making fun of them. But I have argued that I don't really mind these post-election reviews at all. I think that if people have questions about results, even if it's because they are being lied to about them, as Trump has been doing, that there ought to be a system in place where the public can oversee or double-check the results, so long as the, you know, the the challengers pay for the process, ballots are not taken out of the official secure chain of custody, as we saw in Maricopa. Am I wrong uh, to think that that ought to exist, such a process, and, and is such a process even possible?
4: Um, I don't want to be alarmist, but um, I mean, I think we have a very short period of time in which to make our election processes far more publicly transparent and visible and to have much more public participation. I think if we haven't implemented evidence-based elections by the 2024 presidential election, we are very likely to see serious civil unrest in the aftermath of that election. It just has to be, we have to make it a top priority to conduct our elections in a way that they produce real evidence of who won, not just trust me, I did it right, mm-hmm. or trust the vendor who sold me the equipment, or trust the people who configured it for me, or trust this or trust that, but actually, show me. We really need to have show me, not trust me. Uh,
2: and and you hit on exactly the point that concerns me. You know, I think that uh, now that we use computers to tally votes pretty much everywhere, the, the public really has no way of knowing, in most cases, if the computers tallied them correctly, and Uh, That makes it, of course, more difficult to have confidence in the election results, but it also opens the door to charlatans like Trump and the MAGA mob to pretend that the results were fraudulent. Because, you know, it's it's so difficult to prove it one way or another. It is so difficult to, to actually see the results that are counted in secret on computers. You know, it's sort of the worst nightmare that I've been fighting like hell to avoid for so many years. And while it's not a, a, a panacea, I kind of feel like transparency and public oversight ultimately are the only thing that is... Going to save us uh, that can change the trajectory from uh, where we now seem to be headed, as uh, as you note, uh, towards 2024.
4: I completely agree. Uh, and by public oversight, I want to emphasize that we don't mean oversight by partisan legislators taking over county election boards or mm-hmm. something like that. We're really talking about the public, you know, being there, being able to watch the counts, being able to look at records to verify that. The, the ballots were kept secure. Look at records to verify that the number of people who cast ballots matches up with the number of ballots that were received. That uh, and so on. It really needs to be transparent because otherwise, as you said, there's no way to prove or disprove fraud.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've seen nothing to alarm me or concern me about uh, the 2020 election results, that they were wrong, at least on the presidential level. We can talk about congressional races uh, and Senate races another time. But, uh, you know, I've seen nothing uh, to alarm me. But because it's all so secret, it makes it easy for the bad guys to come in and make all sorts of claims that are very difficult to prove one way or another. Uh, Finally, Philip, and I've only got a a minute here, but I, I fear that, you know, this pushback from Democrats we're seeing against this, yes, idiocy by Republicans in many cases when it comes to these so-called post-election audits, that it means that we're going to see less oversight rather than more that you know democrats right now don't even seem to want to talk about public oversight of elections concerns about voting systems anymore i think for fear that will it will add you know food for fodder to the maga mob do you see a similar pattern there and do you share my my concern my fear
4: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, after the 2016 election, the Republicans didn't want to look after the 2020 election. The Democrats don't want to look. If you like the answer, you don't want to look too hard. Um, I I think that's just a terrible mistake. It allows uncertainty to be weaponized, which is what we've seen in the aftermath of the 2020 election. The the fact that a system is vulnerable does not mean that it was exploited. Mm -hmm. But we ought to build our systems or run our systems in a way that if, they, if a vulnerability was exploited, we can catch it and correct the outcome before it becomes final. And we know how to do that. It is a solved problem. It is not rocket science. It does involve a lot of shoe leather, and it involves not trusting the computers on the whole. It requires public transparency and all the things we've been talking about. And I hope that some state legislatures rise to the occasion and you know, decide to do evidence-based elections in time at least for 2024, if not the
2: midterms. Yeah, because they're certainly having trouble doing it in Washington, D.C., so it's going to be left up to the states to pull this off. And you're right, it allows uncertainty to be weaponized. I think you nailed it there. Philip B. Stark, professor of statistics and associate dean of mathematical and physical sciences at the University of California, Berkeley, and the inventor of the risk-limiting post-election audit protocol you can find uh his uh you can find him and you should follow him by the way on the twitters at philip b stark uh philip always great speaking with you my friend i look forward to doing it again in the very near future if there are any more election issues uh, that uh, happen to come out along
4: these lines uh thank you philip Thanks so much for having me on the show, Brad. Just to, so I've actually resigned my position as associate dean, but I'm but I'm still a professor. So. Is that right?
2: Okay, I'll cross it off the uh, the bio sheet here. <laughs> Clearly, he, he couldn't hold a job. Thanks, Philip. Happy New Year, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Okay, we're running late. Quick break here, and the Green News Report, Desi Doyen, is next. Yay. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com/donate. And thanks. I'll stop the world, it with you. Yes, it's still melting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it's still freezing uh, in many parts of the of the globe and including the country. Uh, Des a few weeks ago, I don't I don't know if it was a Fox, it was on Fox News or or people on Twitter. Maybe it was both. I saw a photo of folks in a traffic jam somewhere, trapped in a snowstorm. The caption read something like, "How would you like to rely on an electric car now?"
3: Yes, that was or a Facebook such, meme that yeah. went around, and of course, it's all BS.
2: Well, we, you know, we couldn't get into it in today's Green News Report, but yes, it has happened again in virginia with drivers trapped behind a jackknifed semi on interstate 95 south of dc as rain and then nearly a foot of snow fell in the area stranded folks in both directions across a 40 mile stretch 40 miles uh, in both directions some for nearly 24 hours were stranded in freezing temperatures yep I don't know if they've even all been pulled out yet or not as we go to air, but it reminded me of that photo.
3: Yes, that they are in the process of removing all of the cars, including all of the stranded and abandoned cars from those roadways and the side roads. And, you know, first of all, when officials tell you, hey, a big storm is coming, so please stay home. Listen to them Leave the roads open for truck drivers And first responders and essential workers So that they don't spend their time digging you out Instead of helping other people And as far as electric vehicles are concerned There is a lot of misinformation about that But actually (laughs) I know, shocking, isn't it? So there's lots of evidence now That EV drivers that are stuck in the snow Would do as well, possibly even better Than internal combustion engine car drivers And one good thing about it being an EV driver in a snowstorm is that you don't run the danger of breathing in your car exhaust Uh there was a Tesla driver in Norway who ran a test he posted it all on YouTube where he sat in his car in a snowstorm in 14 degree weather for 24 hours and he said look my Tesla is doing just fine I've used maybe half the battery no danger at all whatsoever because an electric car doesn't really use much energy at all when it's just sitting there even for the heater he said you'd probably get even more battery Battery life if you turn off the touch screen.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, saw reports out of the Virginia with people saying, Oh, they were scared to death because they were running out of gas. Yeah. So uh
3: So yeah, stay off the roads when there's a storm coming, and now is a great time to ensure that you have a car survival bag in your car because extreme weather is definitely getting worse.
2: And stay off of Facebook where they post those stupid memes. <laughs> yes. Uh trying to help big oil uh, to continue Killing the planet. Yep. That's all it is. All right. Speaking of, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report.
0: This is not some future threat that we have to deal with at some point someday. But this is here and now.
3: Colorado's Marshall Fire, now the most destructive in state history. Weather officials say the rain this month alone has been six times greater than average. 2022 kicks off with record-breaking extreme weather. Plus...
1: It is just flooding the street with uh, fecal matter and toiletries just going down, and the odor is really, really bad.
3: Southern California beaches closed after sewage spill triggered by heavy rains.
2: Well, Happy New Year. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman.
3: And I'm Desi Doyan.
2: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and... Snarky comment. A virtual reality world looks increasingly appealing, since in actual reality, the world is still trying to kill us. Yes, it is. This is your Green News Report.
1: I'm gonna soak up the sun.
2: Okay, Desi Doyen. Well, looks like uh, New Year same as the old year.
3: (laughs) Yes, and in the old year, 2021, it squeezed off a few last hits before the buzzer. First, in Colorado, residents in Boulder County are grappling with the devastating aftermath of a fast-moving wildfire driven by hurricane force wind gusts that destroyed nearly a thousand homes and buildings in a matter of hours in three suburbs outside of Denver. The Marshall Fire is now the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. As we go to air, two people are still missing. Investigators are working to confirm the direct cause of the wildfire. But scientists say that climate change and rampant development in wildfire-prone areas were the primary factors in the disaster. Colorado, like all of the western U.S., is now tinderbox box dry. Denver just saw its driest and warmest June to December ever recorded, and its longest snowless period on record. And the entire state has seen months of record Dry and warm weather, all intensified by climate change. Here's Dr. Jennifer Balch, director of the Earth Lab at the University of Colorado, on Democracy Now! And it takes just a little bit of warming to lead to a lot more burning, and that's what we're seeing. What made it a disaster is that there are a lot of homes in the way, and that has, has to do with our development patterns and how we're building into flammable landscapes. You know, we're essentially sitting ducks to the repercussions of climate change if we don't acknowledge it.
2: And yet, after these big storms, these tragic events, the first thing we hear on the news is it's impossible to tie any one storm or any one fire or any one flood to climate change, despite the fact that all the facts around what happened show us that it's absolutely about climate change from lack of
3: snow and rain and drought and everything else. Yes it is and the unprecedented December fires in Colorado also raise the question of how long it will be before insurance companies start to pull the plug on homeowner policies as climate risks mount. Mm. But it isn't just Colorado the Midwest and Southeast were hit with summer-like temperatures that smashed hundreds of all-time December heat records. Kodiak, Alaska hit a record 67 degrees on december 27th on new year's day the south texas town of falcon lake hit 99 degrees breaking the national record for the highest temperature ever recorded in the u.s in the month of january Wow! two days later the same town plunged to 23 degrees bloomberg news reports that even though texas's natural gas industry has had almost a year to harden their infrastructure against freezing temperatures yet again instrument froze and gas production plunged to the lowest level since last year's deadly blackout and they also report that nearly a billion cubic feet of gas was wasted or burned off due to weather-related shutdowns europe also experienced historic winter heat over the holidays and in the brazilian state of bahia tens of thousands have been displaced and at least 20 people killed after weeks of heavy rain triggered massive floods that caused two dams to burst Here in the U.S., the Biden administration has fined the drilling company responsible for the longest-running offshore oil spill in U.S. history. Taylor Energy will pay $43 million in civil penalties and damages for failing to stop an oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico that has been releasing oil since 2004.
2: Nice. $43 million? That's it. I wonder how much they made in the bargain.
3: And finally, a string of famous beaches in Los Angeles County and Long Beach were closed as a precaution after 7 million gallons of raw sewage was discharged into a channel that empties into Los Angeles Harbor. That was caused when an intense storm caused a major sewer line to collapse.
2: Well, there's a lot of folks out there that say Los Angeles is full of well, you get the idea.
3: That storm was one of a string over the holidays that brought much-needed rain and snowfall, but nonetheless were still not enough to end the state's ongoing historic drought. But it
2: helped, right? It helped. It helped a lot. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle And this has been your Green News Report. Ooh,
1: that smell. Can't you smell that smell?
2: Yes, we certainly can. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Uh This uh, breaking news, by the way, just in. The House January 6th Committee releases texts between Sean Hannity and the Trump White House Ooh. as it seeks the Fox News host's cooperation
3: Mm, okie dokie then
2: he can't claim executive privilege can he just wait for it the story will continue I suspect thank you very much Desi Doyen our (laughs) producer thanks to our guest today UC Berkeley's Philip B. Stark And my thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible only by listeners like you who help us stay on your public airwaves and do all of this. Great time at the start of the year to sign up for an automated subscription of any amount you like at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.